Will you pray with me? Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts together be acceptable in your sight through Christ Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This is a world in which we share a lot these days. People on the freeway share rides from time to time. In our church, we share lunches with those who need them. We share clothes with those that need. We will share information from time to time. We get on Facebook, we'll share just about anything there, including what we just ate for dinner or what our feelings are about the neighbor next door who is using his uh, lawnmower at 7.01 in the morning. Just going down in my mind all the things that I've seen people posting on my Facebook feed. I have a lot of jokes that are shared with me uh, that I can't repeat. Uh, <laughs> seems to be a, a sport in this country to send your pastor uh, jokes and things he can't repeat from time to time. And if you're one of those, keep them coming. I enjoy them nonetheless. Uh, my mother told me that her mother used to say, you might as well say it, you were thinking it. And so um, there's a God word in there somewhere. We share. We share the things that are important to us all the time. And I wonder what that says about a church, a denomination that has had such a hard time sharing Jesus with the world. You know, the Methodist people didn't always come across that way. But it seems like someone has stopped up our mouth. It seems like someone has caught us flat-footed. There was a time when Methodists were so filled with zeal that people called them Methodists. <laughs> and they couldn't wait to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. That in a world that is broken down by sin, bent on self-destruction, that into that world God sent prophets, seers, sages, judges, kings, people to be his people, to be called his own. And even when they were stiff-necked and rebellious, even when they rebelled against God's own self, God did not desert them, but God's love was everlasting. He promised that in time he would send a Savior and there would be no mistaking the fact that this was the salvation of God. Because he would not come to punish, but to suffer. He would not come to destroy, but to give life. He would not come to wipe away, but to take upon himself the sins of the whole world. And in Jesus Christ, we have that gift. And more than this, the church has come to understand down through the last 2,000 years that God didn't simply want to wipe away the stain of our sin but to take away the very desire for our sin. To take out an old heart, 
to remove the way of the flesh, to deliver us from the law of the jungle where dog eats dog and you have to walk softly but carry a big stick, and to deliver us instead into a place where people would esteem one another with grace and with dignity. Where we would have the heart of Christ. Where I would be willing to suffer for you. I would lay down my life in order for you to know Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ was the gift of God who created all of us so that we might come to know God in better fellowship. And when he was crucified and died and raised from the dead and ascended into heaven, he sent the promised Holy Spirit. This is our witness. This is our testimony. And yet the church is growing mute these days. And even churches that are growing in numbers. They seem more committed to having good music and a good light show, to having something really awesome and creative happening. I have felt the temptation. When we saw Adventure Camp come up on our radar, I thought, yes, that's what we need. But God speaks to my heart about these decisions because I don't want anyone to misunderstand our motive. If having an adventure camp will help someone who is of young age know how to find Christ, then I say we go for it. But if our desire is just to provide a few more years for our congregation by packing a few more bodies in, then I say, God, judge us and come quickly to do it. Because our primary mission in this world is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ in whatever way it has come to our life. And I want to challenge us together today to be much more honest than we have been in the past about what we know about Jesus Christ. And I want us to be more bold in sharing what we know. The first chapter of the Gospel of John is a tricky place to hang out. The other Gospels are full of wonderful introductions. I mean, it's true the Gospel of Mark starts with John the Baptist, and that's a little bit severe. But it does at least begin to, it starts out by saying, this is the beginning of the good news, and we're going to be with the Gospel of Mark a lot this year. The beginning of good news. I'm ready. Let me have it. The Gospel of Matthew starts out with all these long genealogies, the whole point of which is to fix Jesus solidly in the fulfillment of Jewish expectation about Messiah. He is the son of David. The Gospel of Luke begins with these incredible stories of God breaking into life in a surprising way and just exactly the way that Samuel's mother was promised a child, so now Mary is promised a child. And as Samuel's mother asked, is anything impossible for God? Mary answers back from the pages of Luke, nothing is impossible for God. People give in testimony. And then comes the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was Say it with me, God. you got to get way down in that voice. We need Morgan Freeman to read that passage for us. 
And from the moment they open the gates and they start the little rabbit down the track and the greyhounds are let loose, in the Gospel of John, we're doing theology. But John, I want to hear stories. I don't want to do theology. And even the stories of John are so packed full. The first chapter of John, 18 verses or so of this marvelous hymn about the Word of God who became flesh and dwelt among us. And then there's a story about a couple of disciples who, who were with John the baptizer, and John the baptizer says, there goes the Lamb of God, the one I said I didn't know about. There he goes. I've never met him before, but that's him. And these two went off after him, and one of them was named Andrew, and Andrew had a brother named Peter. And so Andrew went and told Peter, we've seen the Messiah. And Peter said, how do you know? He says, come and see, and I'll show you. And then we have today's passage. The very next day, Jesus decides to go to Galilee. And there, he finds Philip, who then goes to see Nathanael and tells Nathanael, we have found the Messiah, the Christ, the one we're all waiting for. We found him. He's from it's Jesus, and he's from Nazareth. And Nathanael says to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? If you want an equivalent today, um, and please, I hope nobody here is from this place, but it would be a little like saying, hey, we found the Messiah. He's living in Fontana. It's the last place you always look, isn't it? Please, if you're from Fontana, um, I, will, I will apologize to you later. But it must have sounded that way a little bit. And this, this impossibly fast-moving story gallops along where Nathaniel comes walking with Philip because Philip said, come and see, come and see. Just like Andrew said to Peter, come and see. And so Philip comes walking with Nathaniel and Jesus sees Nathaniel and he says, now here is a man, here is a man in whom I find, this is an Israelite, in whom I find no deceit. And Nathaniel says to him, how do you know anything about me? And then there's something very confusing. I saw you while you were sitting under your fig tree. Well, that explains it. <laughs> Except that the fig tree was for the Israelites a symbol of peace, of prosperity. There are some who even say that Teachers used to sit under the shade of the fig trees because they had such broad leaves and it was such a pleasant place to sit so that perhaps even Nathaniel was a teacher. And in fact, the fig tree itself, along with the olives and the vine, became a symbol for Israel itself. I saw you, Nathaniel, when you were sitting under the umbrella of your faith. And I know that your faith is real and legit and heartfelt. Something about the exchange captured Nathaniel's heart. And he said, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You're the fulfillment of all we've hoped for. And Jesus said, are you saying this because I told you that I saw in you a true Israelite sitting under his fig tree? You're going to see greater things than this, Nathaniel. 
That's an important phrase that I want you to file away because you're going to hear a phrase very much like it at the end of John's Gospel. When he tells the disciples, the works that you have seen me do, you will do, and greater works than these, you will do. But for now, it's enough to just see him as he is. Did you think that I was Messiah because you saw me, because I told you I saw you sitting under the fig tree, because I told you that I saw in you the fulfillment of your traditions, you're going to see even greater things than these. What you're going to see is the Son of Man seated on the throne with angels ascending and descending upon him. It's an image right out of our Old Testament. Do you remember when Jacob laid his head down and he took a stone for a pillow and he dreamed of a great ladder going up into heaven? And he saw angels, wait for it, descending and ascending upon that ladder, upon that staircase. And in the aftermath of that night of dreaming, he wrestled with an angel. And he said, I will not let you go until you bless me. And he was given a new name, not Jacob, but Israel. What John is claiming from the beginning of the gospel to the end of this first chapter, what John is claiming is that this is no historical Messiah. This is not just the fulfillment of Israel's political expectation for deliverance. But this is the Son of God. And when John says the Son of God, he doesn't just mean another person. He means this is the Son of God. This is God made flesh. This is the God who created the cosmos and all the stars that you see on a clear night. This is a God whose universe is still expanding. And he became flesh. He became part of what was created. And he walked among us. And you say, oh, pastor, that's all well and good for theological school, but what do we do about that? We have to become a church that not only tells people come and see, but that also experiences Christ for ourselves. Because this is the pattern that John is laying out for us. How do you become a disciple? That might be a good subtext or a heading for this whole chapter. It's the church. John is one of the last gospels written. It's the church struggling with how do people become Christians? How do they become followers of Jesus? They didn't even call themselves Christians in those days. They were followers of the way. That's the simple name that was given to them. We are followers of the way. Well, how do I become a follower of the way? Well, come and see. That's our job, is to tell the people around us, come and see. I can tell you what I know, but you have to come and see for yourself. And then John, by showing these disciples coming again and again to encounter Jesus, is reminding us that once we get as far as come and see, Jesus will take it from there. And just learning our catechism, learning the bullet points of theology, learning to rehearse the story, it's a good start, but until we have an encounter with the living God ourselves through the power of the Holy Spirit, we're not all the way in yet. And for some of us, it's taking us a long time to get through the door. God is still revealing himself 
to me, and I hope God is still revealing himself to you. This is a lifelong process. But our faith lives in a face-to-face encounter with Jesus Christ. Out of that encounter with Jesus Christ come the works of mercy, the feeding of the hungry, the clothing of the naked, the welcoming in of the, of the homeless. For we don't need to build them a separate place. We need to open up our doors and bring them to our place and make them a part of our family. As Father Boyle the founder of Homeboy Ministries downtown Los Angeles, would say, we need to put real faces on the people that we would rather not look at. And we need to learn their names and their stories. And we're going to find out that God is speaking to them too. And they may have as much to tell us about real faith from the places that they've been. How many of you were in the United Methodist Women Luncheon on Thursday and heard Pastor Jerry talking about going to jail. Um, For those who weren't there, (laughs) uh, we pray for you, Jerry, every day. Um, And do Do you watch Pastor Jerry's eyes light up every time he talks about it? Do you see the twinkle that's there? That he can go behind a locked door, he can walk down a corridor, hear the door close behind him, sit down with people who are incarcerated or known as much by a number as by a name and get to know them personally and find out that God goes to jail too. And that these are people of faith and that on the basis of knowing Jesus Christ, we have as much more in common with them than we do with the people maybe living on our street. I hope that makes sense. There's a whole kingdom of connection to be discovered as we come to know the people around us. But the one great step of boldness that we have to overcome as a church in this generation is be able to talk to people about what motivates us, what fuels our fire, what drives us to go out into the world and get to know others. And that's an intimate knowledge with God through the power of the Holy Spirit and of His Son, Jesus Christ. This is our motivation. This is our fire. And I'm not asking you to write big tomes to go into theological libraries. In fact, I'm I'm actually asking you to use the plainest speech you can. If you've only had one or two moments in your life where you said, that was God, then you're doing great. But share it. Don't hold it back. If you don't feel like you can share the kind of testimony that will be part of an interview at a Super Bowl halftime, don't sweat it. Be like Nathaniel, in whom there was no deceit at all. Don't make up stories for God. God doesn't need to have stories made up. But tell what you know. Tell it boldly. Let us all share what we can. When John Wesley came home from his American mission, before the Methodist movement really got going, he was confronted on the way home by a massive sea storm. His boat was on the verge of sinking. And he went downstairs below deck in the boat 
and he saw a bunch of Moravian people who were singing psalms and praising the Lord. And he said, aren't you afraid? And they said, of what? He said, we could die out here. And they said, if we die, we're going to be with God. And he, they said, how do you know? And they, and they said, because God has given us a conviction in our heart. He has given us the assurance of our salvation. So what have we to fear in this world? John Wesley was so blown away by this response that he came home, gathered his wits, and he said, I, he began to preach. I have finally seen what real salvation looks like. And everywhere he went, he would tell people, this is what it looks like, this is what it looks like, this is what it looks like. And he ended every sermon by saying, and I don't have it. It hasn't looked like that for me. It got to the point where his brother Charles, the hymn writer, said to him, you have no idea the damage you're doing to the church by preaching like this. And then he went to a prayer meeting on Aldersgate Street in England. And he had what many of you Methodists have heard about, a moment where his heart was strangely warmed and he was touched by the hand of God spiritually and he knew with a deep deep assurance that Christ had died for him even him now I know it's pretty vogue to be an atheist these days I see atheists giving commercials on TV now And they have their straw men that they set up and they talk about all their way of being in the world. And I want to say that we are not under any obligation whatsoever to go out and create a bunch of arguments to try to come against them or to try to construct proofs from this Bible. Because they are mostly people of science. And this is a book, this is a book of witness and testimony and proclamation and poetry. It was... It was never meant to be a scientific journal. We have scientists for that, and many of them, the deeper they move into science, are becoming people of faith. But for us, we have to begin to tell the story that we know firsthand. So I'm going to challenge you today. The next time you go to Facebook... If you have a living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I want you to begin by saying, my pastor said I needed to do this. But I am a disciple of Jesus Christ, and I believe in him. And here is why I have come to be convinced. And tell about your Aldersgate Street experience. I mean, before you share another cat video, or comment on another political ar article. Talk about your faith in Jesus Christ. Put it out there for people to see. This is where the God of the cosmos cut across my life. Friends, we have to be able to say to others, come and see. And I'm challenging you to do that. Now, one of two things will happen. 
And both of them are happy outcomes. Pastor Jerry and I have talked about this. Either what I ask you to do is going to result in us sharing a fantastic witness with the wired world about the love of Jesus Christ, or it will convince most of you to give up Facebook altogether. In either case, your pastors win. <laughs> but we have, to, we have to start every conversation. We have to, with the words, come and see. Let me end by sharing honestly with you my greatest stumbling block when I first came out of seminary. We were in a retirement community up in Yukaipa, and so there were lots and lots and lots and lots of trips to the hospital. And I wasn't clear on my theology of healing and prayer in those days. And I would go into the hospital and we would talk for a few minutes and as a young pastor I wasn't sure how long to stay and I'm sure in many cases I stayed far longer than I should have because the people lying in a hospital bed always feel like they have to be your host and it wears them out. But sooner or later those fateful words would come, um, do you want me to pray with you? Oh yes, that would be great. And my heart would be beating in my chest. And I'd say, I don't even know, to myself, would say, I don't even know what to ask right now. What if I, what if I promise some grand healing in God's name and nothing happens? What if I say something wrong here? What if I presume too much? What if nothing happens? Have you ever felt that way? And about six weeks of that went by, and the Lord spoke to my heart and said, get over yourself. I asked you to go and pray with them, and I'll take it from there. So my prayers these days when I go to the hospital sound a lot more like come and see. There's a God who loves you. He loves you very much. And we come here every week hoping, hoping that we'll have another one of those moments like John Wesley. And I don't know. But our job is to gather and to put it out there, to rally around the word, to bow our heads in prayer, to hear the beautiful music, and somewhere in the midst of that, to take that final step to open our hearts and, our do and the door to our hearts so that the one who stands knocking can come in. And we'll have an honest, encounter. If you're one of those people who have been saying for a while, Lord, I read the Bible, do you know how hard it is for me to believe some of this stuff? Then say that to God. Be honest. Be real. It's a great start. We'd have no need to have convincing proofs or to harass somebody into the kingdom, but only to, see, come and, only to say, come and see. And Jesus Christ, I am convinced, will take it from there. I have yet to see it fail because he is so good and so loving and his faithfulness knows no bounds.
Amen.